Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Welcome to the 2022 edition of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. A proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. In this episode 279, we visit with Mary Tribble, author of Pious Ambitions, Sally Miriam Waits, Mission South, 1813 to 1831. At its simplest, Sally Waits' life is the tale of a 19th century woman endeavoring to make her mark on the world while striving to develop her faith. She is a significant figure in North Carolina Baptist history whose ambition led her from her young convert to devoted wife of Reverend Samuel Waite, the first president and founder of Wake Forest University. A northern-born woman with anti-slavery leanings, her decisions are shaped by a surging evangelical movement, changes in the American economy, the rise of women's social agency, the fracturing of political traditions, and the moral conflicts inherent in a slave economy. Randall Hall, William P. Hobby, professor of American history, Rice University, says this about the book. Mary Tribble draws from diaries and abundant letters that allows us to witness Sally Wade's inner struggles alongside the events of her life. The result is a compelling and important life story. Before we jump into the uninterrupted interview today, I'd like to thank you for being here. We are grateful for your presence and uh, really appreciate your time joining us here on the podcast. I'm your host, Landis Wade. I'm a uh, recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories. And if you run out of things to do one day, you can check me out at uh, LandisWade.com. Find out more about uh, me and uh, my writing. Speaking of writing, shameless plug here by the other sponsor of this podcast, which happens to be me. Uh, I have a novel coming out uh, in the spring of 2022. It's called Deadly Declarations. You can find out more about that at LandisWade.com. There's pre-order information there uh, for ebook and print book as well. For everything related to the podcast, check out CharlotteReadersPodcast.com. We've got show notes on each episode uh, with images and links. We've also got a community blog there. Uh, if you're a writer, you can submit there. We've got a lot of great content. And speaking of great content, we have a podcast newsletter called The Book Report. You can sign up at uh, CharlotteReadersPodcast.com and stay up with what's going on with the podcast. And... If you're interested in what I'm doing with my writing, you can go to landisway.com and sign up for my author newsletter where I share information about my writing and upcoming novel, Deadly Declarations. Hey, we won't spam you because, frankly, that takes way too much time. One final part to consider, if you like audiobooks, check out Libro.fm, and if you sign up to get audiobooks from them, use the promo code CHARLOTTEREADER, and you might get uh, something extra. But enough of this prologue. Let's get to today's episode. Mary, welcome to the show. Thank you. Congratulations on the book. It's very exciting. Yeah. Now, um, we've got a Wake Forest uh, connection in my family. I had uh, my wife and I met there in law school. My son went to undergrad there, and uh, I'm a distant relative to Alfred Dockery, who I think gave the first gift to the college way back when. And uh, you have a family connection. We're going to talk about that before the show's over. But you're now, you're, you're in 
in Sidewake, you're a what they call a senior advisor of engagement strategy. That's a long word. I hope they pay you equal to that. <laughs> to <laughs> yeah, that. I don't. I get it. I get paid by the word. Yeah, yeah, yeah you get paid by the word. Uh, and you also uh, you're an eight nine eight two under, under, undergraduate, and you received your master's in liberal studies at Wake Forest in 2019. So your ties to you know to Wake Forest uh, run deep. In fact, your great uncle. Harold Tribble was president of the university when it moved from the town of Wake Forest to Winston-Salem. And your fourth great-grandparents, the topic of this book, Samuel and Sally Wake, were founders of the college. And as I recall, there's also a Tribble Hall there, right? There is a Tribble Hall. There is a Tribble Hall. It's the most confusing classroom building on campus. Okay. Well, hopefully, yeah, as I see, your book is more uh, orderly than that that building. Um, But let's let's start with a family connection. how has this connection to Wake Forest, uh, you know, once a college, now a university, has it always been this connection sort of present in your mind growing up? And, and and does that connection have something to do with why you eventually in your life decided to write this book? Well, it's always been kind of in the background. I would say it would be more in the forefront of my mother, who is um, who is a historian in her own right. And she always wanted me to be more interested in the fact that I was a descendant of the Waits. And, and in fact, some 20 some years ago, when um, a treasure trove of archives were donated, was donated to the, um, the Z. Smith Reynolds Library at Wake Forest University, she began transcribing those letters in hopes of actually writing some kind of compilation of letters between the weights and constantly tried to get me interested in helping her out. And I constantly refused her because I was busy <laughs> running a business and not interested. But it was when I, it was when I came back to campus, you know, I lived in Charlotte for um, almost 30 years uh, running a business, but it was when I um, moved on from my business and came to work for Wake Forest and was back on campus that kind of the, the, um, I don't know, the legacy and kind of the importance of that information to me personally began to emerge. Yeah, it's interesting. So uh, it, this all just occurred to me, but has anyone ever done a compendium of the actual diaries and annotated them? And, or did you have to go in and just dig them out to write this? I, I went in and dug them out. And um, as I said, my mother had done a lot of transcribing, so it made it easy at the beginning to at least go through and read her typewritten notes. But um, but many of the letters, I, I mean, I went back to all the original sources um, during my research. So it was learning, you know, you have to learn how to read um, 19th century script, and then you have to learn the um, the perplexities of individuals own handwriting because sometimes you had to you know piece words together sometimes letters were crosshatched meaning they'd write um one direction across the page and then they'd turn it and write on top of it and so you'd have to decipher that as well so um there was um i spent a lot of time (laughs) in the special collections room in the archives well that leads to my next question um you know writing a book is hard enough but writing a book that requires footnotes is even is even harder. And so you really have to have a passion for the project. What, what drove you to write this particular book? Well, part of what drove me was being back on campus professionally. And, um, and we were, Wake Forest as an institution was in the midst of um, reevaluating its history and the narrative. And more than anything, I really wanted to bring a woman's voice to the Wake Forest historical narrative 
Some things have been written about Samuel Waite, not a lot, but a certain, um, a good number of articles and so on. And Sally was, like most 19th century women, a footnote to her husband's narrative. And, um, and frankly, once I got into the archives and began to read more about her, I actually find her a much more interesting um, uh, character than, than her husband. That's interesting. Well, I'm going to uh, let our listeners know that uh, speaking of footnotes and academic type uh, work, and uh, we're going to jump over to Patreon listeners after this. And uh, Mary and I are going to talk about uh, working with academic presses. And you can check that out at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. Um, so Mary, um, you've talked about, um, you've got some awards for this and you've talked about it. You've been a guest lecturer uh, at different places in academic settings. And I'm just curious, um, you know, what are some of the, and we're going to get into more detail about Sally in the discussion here, but what are some of the more, I don't know, quirky, interesting, surprising facts about Sally Waite that uh, you like to share with audiences when you tell her story? Well, one, I will say this. When I started reading her, we have her journal, and a lot of the a lot of the um, first few chapters of the book are based on the journal that she writes while she and Samuel Waite are courting. And um, when I first read that journal, I thought, oh my gosh, she's like manic depressive because you know on on one end she would be you know just this high, um, a very devout, um, pious woman, and then the next the next uh, page, she would be, you know, just on her knees in tears because she was a terrible human being. And what I found out was, as I did more research, is that that is the way that evangelical women <laughs> wrote and talked. And, 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 and it's very much patterned after that. So, so probably the biggest aha moment for me was, as I mentioned before, I started doing my research, reading these transcriptions that my mother had done um, years and years ago. And so I was reading Sally's journal. I read it probably 40 times on of my mother's transcription before I actually decided to go into the archives and actually look at the journal, the physical object itself. And when I pulled that journal out and I saw how on the very first page, it starts with her meeting Samuel for the first time, although she doesn't name him. And the very last page, she finishes wrapping up a church scandal that she's in charge of investigating. And I realized, oh, this is not like a workaday diary that, that you know, you or I might scribble in and put under our pillow. This was a performative piece. In other words, it was almost, it had a story arc. It had a beginning, it crested at the middle when he asked her to marry her, um, and then comes down to, to finishing out this church scandal. And so I realized that it wasn't unusual for women of that time to, to write journals in a way that they would share with their friends um, or share with others. So um, I believe that Sally wrote it thinking that she would share it with her someday daughter and her daughter's daughter and her daughter's daughter's daughters and her. And so mm -hmm. that's me. Um, and and it almost became a piece of um, what's called conduct literature, where it feels like she is actually telling her imagined reader the proper way for a young, um, recently converted evangelical woman to court and to go through courtship. And um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of talking about duty versus passion and um, and making sure that she's she's acting in a way that she wants us to see her act. 
Mm-hmm. So that was probably the biggest aha I, I felt was, um, was understanding that, she, you know, she was, she was not just writing in her, I mean, she was kind of playing us, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I was reading the book, I actually, uh, stopped and was very intrigued by the church scandal part of the, the <laughs> <Yeah>. story. <laughs> I was interested that they kind of put her in charge or on the jury or whatever it was at the time to, to sort of, uh, determine, okay, what are we going to do with this person? You know? It was a, it was, so it showed that, that she carried some respect because she was only about 20 years old or so when she was put in charge of this committee. And the scandal was that the minister, Elder Scott Starkweather was having an affair with Mrs. Hall. Well, that never happened. That never happens. <laughs> that never before. happens in Baptist churches, does it? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, it's so, still yeah. going, still going on today, right? Yeah. Still going on today, but boy, they treated those, they treated those um, discipline problems with uh, with vigor, and uh, yeah. Well, well, Sally Waite made you know, of course, a shift in her life. We're going to talk about, but you you also shifted in your own profession. Prior to Wake Forest, you owned Tribble Creative Group in Charlotte for twenty five years. You staged thousands of events in Charlotte around the region, including the two thousand twelve Democrat National Convention, and and now you're you know back home at Wake Forest and you're writing about the college, uh, how, how hard was it to make that shift from this sort of <laughs> dynamic business to more maybe what well, I know that your outreach with the alumni is kind of similar to what you did maybe, but this other thing where you go in a library and kind of you're all by yourself. It, totally different. I, I like to say that I, I, I reconnected with my inner history nerd when I got back on campus because I was an art history major. So I always loved delving into, um, into research and, and understanding of, 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 you know, certain um, elements of time and place. Um, but it was, it, it was, it's very different. It couldn't be more different. I do through my work, working with alumni, you're right. I actually do a lot of the same kind of things that I did when I ran my event company, but this is a total kind of cerebral type of process. And it's a lonely process. You know, I mean, it's, I mean, for about a year and a half when I was writing this, this book was actually started as my thesis when I was in school. And so for about a year and a half of writing my thesis and then making the revisions for the book, um, I mean, almost every night I would go home from work and I'd work till 10 o'clock at night. And then all day Saturday, all day Sunday, it was, um, it, 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 it is a very, it's, there's a lot of solitude to it. I was lucky in that I had some, I had some colleagues, both um, people who were my thesis advisors and some of my favorite professors, um, as well as uh, another colleague who's doing some research to write a a new book about Wake Forest history. And so I'd be able to connect with them and we would share, um, share our ideas and I'd be able to test my theories against some other scholars. But other than that, it was, it could not be more different, but it fed me in a very different way. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and it's, it's rewarding in a way that's kind of hard to describe. Yeah. And not until you get the finished product and you hold that book in your hands, you take a big sigh of relief, right? <laughs> exactly. A big sigh. <laughs> so so I like to poke around sometimes on authors' websites that I invite onto the show. And I did did that with you. And I found a blog post uh, you, you posted last uh, July called Walking Inside My Story. Uh, you quote Brene Brown, you either walk inside your story and own it or you stand outside your story and hustle for your worthiness. Um and of course, it relates to your um, discussion uh, and your finding out um, 
about the fact that uh, in your family history, uh, back in time to the to the people we're talking about, they had two women um, that they enslaved. And you said that that was the moment my family narrative began unraveling for me. Talk about that unraveling and what your thoughts are about that today. Well, yes, it was, you know, I look back on it now and think how kind of naive I must have been to think that, oh, these folks would not have would not have owned slaves um, for a couple of reasons. One is that Sally's family were, um, you know, very, um, very much anti-slavery. And um, and I I knew that from the letters that I had written. And it wasn't until this colleague who I mentioned, who's working on a history of Wake Forest, showed me the bill of sales in the archive for these two women. And, um, you know, I liked, I, I did, I, I think I created a narrative in my mind that they would not have owned slaves because of, because they both came from the North and because they were poor Baptist ministers. I mean, you know, they didn't make much money and I just, and I, and they're Baptists. And I just thought, you know, how, how would that go with, with their faith? And of course we know from history that the Baptists made, especially the Southern Baptists made a lot of bad choices, um, around, um, around slavery and enslavement. So it was, um, it was, it, it has continued to cause me to try to understand what that legacy means, you know, so these seven generations of, of, um, of individuals who, I mean, obviously it wasn't seven generations that owned, uh, that owned enslaved people, but, um, but there is, there is this, there is this history of privilege that has been passed down from generation to generation and just kind of an unknowing about, uh, an unawareness about what that means and everything that's packed into that. And, you know, it wasn't until I started my studies that I learned about this whole idea of the the lost cause narrative, you know, the, the kind of post-reconstruction era of of really reviving, I mean, revising history about what what the Civil War was all about, and you know this kind of happy slave narrative that um, at least used to be told on plantations. I'm I'm hoping most museums and plantations are are revising their narrative based on based on um, accurate knowledge, but it did cause me to have to try to deconstruct what I thought I knew about myself, what I thought I knew about my family heritage, what I thought I knew about the South and, and my family's role in it. And I'm yeah. still, I'm still working on it. Still working yeah. on it. As are the colleges and universities, because you talk about that in your blog post about how this has sort of been glossed over in the narratives of, you know, Wake Forest history. And, uh, it's starting to come out and people are having to, you know, address that and figure out, uh, you know, what to do about it. Um, all right, well, let's talk a little bit about the book uh, before you do a reading for us here. It's uh, the year is 1812. Uh, uh, Sally Miriam Waite uh, is 19, and she experiences her conversion during a period called the Second Great Awakening. Now, for all of us who aren't students of, uh, you know, Baptist history, tell us about the Second Great Awakening and what that conversion meant for Sally Miriam Waite. The Second Great Awakening was a time, it starts in kind of the late 18th century and goes into the, oh, say, 1830s, 1840s, and so on. And it's a time of um, 
of revival and there are revivals that are happening. And it's not just the Baptists. It's basically Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, any what we would call now now and then evangelical religions. And they would hold these camp meetings where thousands of people would be drawn for days at a time. And they'd have these just um, very emotional drop to your knees kind of conversions. And the setting and the backdrop to all this was the fact that what was being preached in the pulpit at the time was that we were in end times. So Sally actually dedicates her journal to four lines of a poem. um, And it starts, you know, something about amidst the verge of life, we tread along death. I can't remember the exact quote. And it's this, you know, so here's this 20 year old woman or still kind of a girl writing, dedicating her her um, her journal to this really sad kind of dark thought. And it's because there's so much going on in 1812, especially, you know, there's the war, there's epidemic, there's um, earthquakes and fires and all kinds of disasters. And so it's being preached in the pulpit that these are the end times. So there's an urgency for people to, um, for people to repent, convert. And it's also kind of a coming of age as well. So that's the backdrop to Sally's conversion. Um, in her personal life, what what actually triggers it is the death of a young friend, um, a young woman named Nabby Farrington, who's a very, very popular girl in town. And it's the day of her funeral that Sally actually has this um, this emotional conversion and decides to put aside kind of frivolous childhood things and um, and set off on a path to um, to serve God. Yeah, and there's such a thing in Wake Forest called Waite Chapel, and uh, you know Samuel Waite uh, is who Sally ends up marrying. We'll talk about that in a moment. But we got this is a time I think we'll do a little reading from the book. Can you set this uh, reading up? Tell us where we are in the book, and uh, and then uh, whenever you're ready, just take it away. Sure. Well, I started all my research trying to figure out why in the world Sa- Sally Waite w- or Sally Miriam would leave this lovely little town in Brandon, Vermont, where she enjoyed pretty you know comfort, and end up in a, the back of a, in the front of a Jersey wagon, covered Jersey wagon, um, going back and forth across the crossroads of North Carolina in the 18th century or 19th century, because it did not sound like much fun to me. And so I wanted to figure out why, why she made that choice. And that's really what the whole book explores. And one of the key, so they spend a lot of time apart. So they both, they both have these pious ambitions of being missionaries. And ultimately, they end up choosing the South as their mission. Um, and they had considered going to Burma. They had considered a mission to the Cherokees. But they decided, because so, New Englanders looked at the South as, as a mission field. And so there's a key moment that actually is, is kind of the final switch to convince Sally to agree to join Samuel down in North Carolina while they're separated. So, um, so I'll pick up from there. The frequent separation and infrequent communication were wearing thin on the little family. By this time, Samuel and Sally had lived together only about seven years of their 13-year marriage. Samuel was concerned about his distance from them, telling Sally to, quote, kiss the dear children for me a thousand times. Sally missed Samuel tremendously. For all her missionary dreams and his wanderings, she wrote that all she really wanted was for God to, quote, preserve your life and health amidst all your wanderings and to bring us all together again around our fireside, our own family altar, unquote. She worried that her children were growing up without a father. They missed their pa. 
Shortly after Sally arrived back in Brandon, she wrote about her son and her, his older sister, Annalisa. William Carey begins to say a few words. Ask him where his papa is, and he will reply, gone. Annalisa says, tell Pa I want to see him and to kiss him. Tell him he must come here in the stage, and I will give him some of Grandma's very sweet apples. Sally continued about Annalisa. She very often dreams about you and wakes me to tell you, tell me her dream. During Sally and Samuel's earliest partings, while she may have pined for her husband, she had the comfort that their separation was guided by their shared duty to God. Understanding that concept as an adult Baptist was one thing. Explaining it to two tiny children was another. Samuel's thoughts often went to Sally and their dear babes. He worried that Annalisa would forget him and reminded Sally to tell her to, quote, mind her ma, learn to read pretty well before I come and pray every day, unquote. And with William Carey so young, he knew that he could, quote, not understand a word I write, how I want to see the little fellow with his cap on making tracks in the snow. Samuel wrote these words on January 11, 1831, from Anson County, North Carolina. What Samuel did not know when he wrote this letter, what he could not have known, was that William Carey, his one-and-a-half-year-old son, was dead. Four months would pass before Samuel would read the details of his son's death. His early January letter, filled with ruminations about the couple's future, wended its way to a grieving mother, while Sally's letter, fastened with black sealing wax to indicate the mournful news, tried to catch up to Samuel as he moved from town to town. In May, back in Brandon, Sally penned the painful particulars. As she had planned, Sally traveled with her children a few days before Christmas to Tynmouth, Vermont, where Samuel's father and brother lived. On December 29th, William Carey had been at play, although she, he seemed to be coming down with what she calls a hard cold. Sally sent for a doctor when his symptoms grew worse and a fe fever developed. Still, she was not particularly alarmed. The attendant physician gave the child a, an emetic, possibly the commonly used tartrate, to cause vomiting, which she reports operated favorably and greatly relieved him. However, the following night, quote, his respiration became very much oppressed, and towards morning, his voice entirely failed him. The family again sent for a doctor while they desperately tried to relieve his lungs to no effect. His respiration became more labored, and all the while, Sally writes, the little creature was sensible of his sufferings to the last. Sally described the heartbreaking scene at the end when her son, quote, raised himself in the cradle and desired to be taken into my arms. Sally took William Carey into her lap, holding and rocking the struggling child. Within minutes, she writes, his breathing stopped. He gasped twice and expired. Powerless to save her dying baby, Sally, quote, watched the return of another sigh. His lungs had ceased to heave and his spirit had fled from its clay tenement forever. William Carey died in her arms at half past 11. Well, that's hard to, hard to listen to. Um, it, it, that could, you know, the effect that would have on any parent uh, is tragic um, and very emotional. How did it affect her and, and her choices going forward? Well, so Sally was with his family in Tenmouth when this happened. So, so first of all, yes, it, losing a child has to be the worst thing imaginable. But losing a child when you're separated from your husband and separated from her own family. So she's not her mother. As, as soon as um, as soon as word 
comes out that William Carey has died, her mother and her sister and all the um, um, the brothers and cousins write to her about how they cannot travel to be with her. And so she's kind of she's there she is in this this town with her her husband's family, who she's not particularly close to. And I think this this was really um, the moment that made her decide to be with Samuel in North Carolina. So what's happening is that this is happening to her while Samuel is going from town to town to town, raising money for the Baptist. You know, this is why the letter can't catch up to him. So he does, he goes four months before understanding what's happened. And he actually is at the first, the first or the second annual meeting of the North Carolina Baptist convention when finally the letter catches up to him. And so he's been writing her all this time saying, hey, I really think North Carolina is our mission field. Hey, New Bern is a really great town. Why don't you come this way um, or, or, you know, come, come with me. And she's, she's still, she's resistant. She doesn't want to move to a slaveholding state. She doesn't want to go somewhere um, where, you know, there's, there's a whole thing around people from the North going to the South and dying because of the heat. And, um, but it was this moment finally when um, Samuel writes her one more time after he learns that the, that little William Carey has died. And, and he says, just come, just, just come with me, bring Ann Eliza. We will ride in this covered wagon together, raising money for the Baptists. And um, people I know who are my friends will open, open their arms for you and make a home for you. And so for Sally, I think it was just this moment of realizing um, that the life that she had in New England was no longer there for her and serving her and that she wanted to be with Samuel and she wanted to follow her missionary ambitions. How did she uh, reconcile her anti-slavery sentiments with then later, uh, you know, enslaving people? Well, we don't know that um, because she doesn't write it for us. And, um, you know, I know that she, I do know that she is hesitant to come south. I, there are many letters with her um, family begging her not to move south. And, um, but, you know, the, and so the further she gets South. So the, their first stop is Washington City in D.C., where Samuel is getting an education at what is now George Washington University. And that's where she's exposed to slavery for the first time. They don't own slaves at that time, but they're slave, enslaved people who are um, servicing the college. And certainly Washington City is the is, you know, the the hotbed of the domestic slave trade. So it's there in your face. Then they moved to, they moved to New Bern for a couple of years. And that's when we see two enslaved people in their house for the first time. They didn't own them, but, um, but they leasing enslaved people was a common, common um, um, phenomenon at that point. And then as they get deeper into the South, you know, going this way toward um, to, toward Raleigh and and um, Wake Forest, and when they settle in the town of Wake Forest is when they um, actually purchase two women to um, to start a boarding house is basically what mm. the plan is. So we don't know how she uh, we don't know how she squares it. Okay. So the book itself covers the period eighteen thirteen to eighteen thirty one. Uh, I'm curious about that. Why that period of time, and uh, or is this a uh, 
sort of a clever way to set up book two. Yeah, it's a really good question. <laughs> um, well, it is. It's kind of ironic that it ends before Wake Forest is founded. Um, um, I, for a couple of reasons. One, it starts in 1813 because that's when Sally's narrative begins for us. That's when she begins writing, um, both in her journal and we have a small essay book that's actually still in the family where she's working out her theological um, thoughts and letters start going back and forth. So it's when her narrative actually emerges is, is why. And it's also the time the time of her conversion. And that's the moment that everything changes for her. Um, it goes up to 1831 because 1831 is, it's the moment that I just, I just read about that she made the decision to commit to North Carolina and to come and to come and choose North Carolina as, as, as her home. Um, so it, that was the answer to the question I was looking for. So that's why I decided to end it there. But to your point, um, uh, it's certainly there. There is a, there are enough writings and there is enough information there that I could actually go back and then um, and choose to write about her time in the in the town of, well, at the College of Wake Forest that later became the town of Wake Forest. Mm. Um, if I if I decided to do that, <laughs> okay. <laughs> if you have enough energy after That's this right. one, right? That's right. <laughs> so, uh, what was her art during this time period? What what did she accomplish? Um, what were what was one of one or two of her regrets? Uh, I think you kind of end on a note about her, a friend of hers going to foreign lands, and and she maybe had always wanted to do that to minister to people, you know, mm -hmm. in other places, and she didn't get to do that. Well, talk about her accomplishments and her regrets. Well, you know, she's I, you know, and it's speculation on my part. I do I do wonder if, you know, on the one hand, especially their time in D.C. was just this. I mean, D.C. was this hotbed of Baptist elites at the time, which I know is kind of an oxymoron. <laughs> but um, but they were the Baptists were organizing and they were start at Columbian College, which is now George Washington University. And they were funding all these foreign missions. And so they were organizing in D.C. They were courting all the politicians. Sally went to parties at the White House. They had parties with Lafayette when he was making his tour um, in 1824 and 1825. So and so, you know. So th there was this wild time of all this kind of excitement and hoopla. And then she gets to, um, you know, they, they're in New Bern for a period of time and then they, they found, found the college. And, and you know, I, I envision her, what, you know, like she had a lifetime of stories from, you know, the Lafayette, <laughs> from the Lafayette story alone. So on the one hand, I kind of envision her sitting on the front porch, spinning all these tales. Um, and, but on the other hand, I do wonder if there was a wistfulness of, you know, in the end, she becomes a college administrator's wife, right? And I believe she she really, um, from what I've read about the early years of the college, she um, she does kind of become a mother figure to the college, and she um, and she's somebody that the students interact with and look up to and respect. Um, and and certainly, she ends up, although she only has one um, surviving child, Anne Eliza. Anne Eliza has ten children, and so there are a lot of there's a lot of family lore around the education that Sally provided for her children as well. So, you know, in a, in a lot of ways, she is a 19th century, what she referred to herself as a help meet to her husband. Um, but she also, you know, especially in the early years when Samuel was down in DC by himself and she was up in Brandon, she started a bonnet making business. I mean, she, she had a lot of, she was, she was full of um, kind of ideas of enterprise, which I like to think I might have inherited. Um, mm. So um, so she accomplished a lot 
it she worked within the sphere of 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 an eight, an 18th century woman but she pushed up against it best she could all right i got a uh question about the title and then i want to ask a writing life question too before we wrap it up here um you mentioned oxymoron a minute ago and i saw the title pious ambitions <laughs> that that word came to mind yeah. <laughs> talk about that title so um interestingly uh, my mother gave me a piece of paper a couple of months ago that was written by my grandmother and she was writing about sally Waite, and i had never seen this before and I had already, I mean, the book was already published and the title already chosen. And the two things that my grandmother wrote about her, she would have been her great, great grandmother, who she had never, of course, met, was that she was highly ambitious and she talked about her piety. And so those were the two things that just bubbled up for me as I read about Sally. You know, I mean, like when she was making her bonnets, she was she was telling Samuel, hey, you know, I think the first lady should wear one of my bonnets. So would you mind going to the White House and knocking on the door and seeing if um, President Monroe would um, would buy one for his wife? So she had a lot of ambition. And and even the bonnet making itself had an ultimately piet, end in piety, right? In other words, it was to make money so that he could buy books and get his education so that they could become missionaries together. So, so she, she did, she was, she had a lot of ambition, both in her ministerial life, but also her economic life. Um, but it was all wrapped in and veiled um, with this, this higher ambition of leading a pious life. A couple of writing life questions. what did you find uh, most difficult uh, and most gratifying about the writing process? Um, learning how to do citations again, since I had not done any since, since college. Um, it was, and it, this of course started while I was in, in grad school, is just learning how to put together an academic paper and look, and, and, you know, this, because it's, this started as a, as a uh, master's thesis, it had, I had to approach it with academic rigor. And so um, learning how to organize my thoughts put across a statement, a thesis, and then argue, argue for that and provide all of the, all of the citations and the footnotes to do that was in some ways tedious, but it was also very rewarding. So now I actually, whenever I read an academic book, I am all over the footnotes. I, I love reading footnotes because <laughs> sometimes there's really treasures in, in, in the footnotes if you read them, if you read them and take the time to do that. So, so some of what was the most challenging was also the most rewarding is just challenging my brain to work in a completely different way that it had been working for the last 30 years. Yeah, that, that's why I'm a novelist. Uh, I prefer fiction. I don't have to worry about the footnotes. That's I, right. I'll, I'll do a little afterward that loosely describes, you know, <laughs> where, what, my, what my sources are, but I don't, I don't want to have to put in uh, you know, right. all, all those footnotes. Um, well, um, that's great. Um, when people ask you about, uh, you know, this thing called book writing and they say, hey, you know, how hard is this really? You know, um, what do you tell them? It's, it's the hardest thing I ever I have ever done. It's, it's literally the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. It both with the amount of time that it took and, and frankly, the raw emotion. I think a lot, a lot of that for me was because I, here I was uncovering. I mean, I thought I was going to be writing about the sweet little grandmother, you know, and, and then I dug into it and realized, oh no, she is a, she is a, her own woman, um, made a 
whole cloth and um, and and imperfect. And um, and so who she is does inform who I am. Uh, so it was it was an emotional roller coaster. I mean, I I cried in the art archives um, mm -hmm. more than a few times. Well, we uh, we could keep talking. There's lots to talk about, but uh, that's why people are going to pick up the book and read it for themselves. Um, it uh, listeners again, we're going to jump over to Patreon. We're going to talk about how to work with the uh, an academic press. Uh, shout out to Ed Williams for uh, recommending that I contact Mary Tribble for this. Uh, Ed, if you're listening, uh, thanks for doing that. It's been wonderful here. Hey, uh, Mary, listen, I want to thank you for being a part of Charlotte Reader's Podcast. Thank you. It's been a joy. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.